I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in the series, More of the Holy Spirit. All throughout the stories of Jesus' life, we read case after case of people who are not well coming to Jesus and being made whole. But this motif doesn't end with Jesus. It continues with the apostles, the first wave of disciples, and on into the growing movement of the church. But does Jesus still heal people now? We're nearing the end of an ongoing series all about the Holy Spirit and the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does. It's been a lot of content, so if you missed some along the way, feel free to go back and catch up on the podcast. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing the kinds of specific things that the Holy Spirit does. So we talked about prophecy in depth. We talked about even weird stuff like speaking in tongues in depth. And tonight, we're going to talk about miraculous healing. Um, Before we begin, I do have a bit of recommended reading for anyone interested. Tonight's teaching is more like a a broad overview, because you can't, uh, this may surprise you, fit all of it into a half hour. But if you really want to get into the theology and practice of healing, two books that I'd recommend are um, Power Healing by John Wimber, who some of you I'm sure know um, started the... um, vineyard movement. And then another one is a book called Healing by Francis McNutt, who's actually a Catholic priest. Fantastic book. In fact, we love both of those books so much that they are on a stack of required reading for anyone who is training to be an elder at Van City, um, meaning if they are an elder, they at some point read either Wimber or McNutt's book on healing. So we really believe in those. Check those out if you're interested. Now, Lots of ground to cover tonight. I'm going to move around in the scriptures quite a bit, so hang in there, and let's uh, get to work. You guys feeling all right? Yeah. Feeling great. Thank you. Um, let's read from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. The story goes, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Interesting. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, this reality, awaited for centuries, yet unseen until now, has finally arrived. And it's the kind of place where this reality is the kind of place where people who were blind will actually recover their sight. People who could not see will be now able to see somehow. A place where, as the story will go on to say, the kinds of people who would today be confined to wheelchairs are going to be able to stand up and walk and run and jump. A place where cancer cells will evaporate and tumors will shrink and vanish, where the mentally ill will be made well and those anxious or depressed will find peace and joy. And Jesus called this new reality or this place where all of those things happen the kingdom of God. More than two millennia ago, he read an ancient scroll that promised that this kingdom would one day arrive. And then he said plainly, it's here. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And it wasn't just an empty promise. From here on out in Luke's gospel, we go on to read story after story of Jesus doing the things that he said would come to pass in Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, watch this. Look back down at Luke 4, 
and skip down to verse 38. It says, Jesus left the synagogue, so this is right after that, and he went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each of them, he healed them. Let's read a bit more from the very next chapter, Luke chapter 5. Flip a page or just move over a bit and look at Luke 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy, a skin disease. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So it's not just that the man is uh, sick in the physical sense. He's unclean, meaning his condition has cut him off from his own people and from the temple. So he wants more than just physical healing from Jesus. He wants to be restored to his community, restored to the temple, restored to God. And uh, look what Jesus does. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news spread about him all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him, Jesus, and to be healed of their sicknesses. Let's read the story that follows this one, a story familiar to most of you, I'm sure. Verse 17 says, One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him in on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven, which is a funny thing to say, given that this man and his friends have gone through all this trouble to have him physically healed, not to have his sins forgiven. But Jesus sees more than this man and his condition, and he speaks to everything going on in the moment. Watch what happens. Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today, to say the least. Now stay with me just a bit more. Turn over to chapter 6. Let's read beginning with verse 17. Another story. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing how many of them? All of them. Turn over to chapter 7. Let's read another one. Chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation, he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, 
don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd and follow, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel, because this man is not a Jew. Then the men who had, sent, uh, who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, we could do this all night, but we won't. Leave Luke open in front of you for just a bit later, but for now, let's read just one more Jesus healing story from Luke 7. I love this story. That's why I've saved it for this part. Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, these are all like in rapid succession. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So uh, pause. This is a worst-case scenario for this woman. Not only had her son died, which is unimaginable, but her hope for income, her connectedness to the community is now all gone. All is lost for this woman. And the story goes on. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bear. They were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. So see that. It's not just that God has come to raise the dead, but to turn this widow's hopeless story around as well. God has come to help his people. So is the motif starting to take shape in your mind at this point? Wherever Jesus goes... People who are unwell come to him, and they are made whole. In some cases, they don't come to him. He just passes by, and they are made well. Jesus, in other words, heals people. But notice this, um, from even this small sample size of healing stories, notice that there is no formula to the thing. One woman was just sick in a house when Jesus happened to show up. Others, like the man with leprosy or the man lowered in on the map, they, they go way out of their way to present themselves to Jesus in need of help. That seems to be the obvious way to go about it. Another, the centurion, has someone go and ask on the behalf of someone else. We don't even know what the servant thought about any of it. The mother's dead son just happens to pass by. And remember, there are a lot more of these stories. You get stories where beggars are asking for money and they get healed instead. You get stories where people wait in line to get healed based on word of mouth. We don't know what they really thought about Jesus other than, hey, he heals people. We should go check that out. One woman touches Jesus' clothes without Jesus even knowing that it was her doing it, and she gets healed from that. I read from an essay this week that when tallied, 38.5% of the stories in the four Gospels are about Jesus healing people. That is a lot of real estate dedicated to healing stories. And if you've read these biographies of Jesus' life, this likely comes as little surprise. The healing stories are woven into the Gospels to the degree that people who don't even follow Jesus or read the Bible at all know about them. They are some of the earliest Jesus stories that we learn as children, and with good reason. But it's not just Jesus that goes around healing people. Look back down at Luke and turn over to chapter 9. And let's read from Luke 9, beginning with verse 1. It says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, that's his closest community of disciples, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to do what? Cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. 
So the earliest mission of Jesus' followers was to proclaim the kingdom, in other words, to go around telling people the good news about Jesus, but that wasn't the only thing that they were supposed to do. They were to drive out demons, cure diseases, and heal the sick, which is why in verse 6 we read, so they set out, and they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere, not one without the other. And it's not just the apostles either. Turn over to chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and let's read... Beginning with verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to go to every town and place where he was about to go. So now you have dozens of Jesus' apprentices, not just his core community, being sent out to do the exact same thing, proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, drive out demons, restore people that are um, ailed by diseases. But it's not just them either. Stay with me. We're almost done. One more time. Turn over to the book of Acts. It goes Luke, John, and then Acts. So just a couple books forward. If you're new to the New Testament, don't feel bad. It is new. (laughs) Don't wow it. Don't do the wow. That Ben, that was you. He did like a pity chuckle and then wow. You're supposed to do that in your head, not out loud. Acts chapter 5. So this is now after Jesus' death and resurrection, this new idea of the church has begun to grow, and Acts records like the first few decades or so of this burgeoning movement of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we read this, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result... People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And how many of them were healed? All of them were healed. Now, if you're thinking, okay, well, fair enough, but that's, you know, Peter. Uh, one of Jesus' best friends. He's like the rock on which Jesus promised to build the church. Isn't he kind of special? And the answer is, yeah, sure, he's kind of special. But these people aren't being healed by Peter's specialness. Watch this. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Let's read from Acts 8, beginning with verse 4. It says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So now we're into a whole new movement, whole new place, whole new group of people. Philip, who's a new guy, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. This is a dude who's come to faith in Jesus without having met Jesus, without having walked with the 12 during the ministry of Jesus or anything like that. But look what happens. Verse 6, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. It's an amazing story, but notice this. In verse 7, look back down. How many of the people who were paralyzed or lame were healed? Many. Isn't that weird? Many, not all. Many is still incredible. Can you imagine saying that about Van City? Sick people show up and many are healed. Many is nothing to sneeze at. But just as the healing itself isn't formulaic, neither are the results. Sometimes all of them are healed, sometimes not. Sometimes it's many. But the bigger point is that whether it was Jesus or the 12 apostles or the first apprentices or the ones who came decades after that, when the kingdom of God is proclaimed by those who follow Jesus, people get healed. Now, 
Given the scope of the healing motif in the Bible, the sheer volume of stories and the nuance and complexity of each of those stories, there's obviously quite a bit we could say about healing. We can't do a comprehensive study in a half hour, so I want to do more of a broad overview with food for thought for this evening and in the context of this series. So let's start with uh, four points about healing. First, if you're taking notes, all healing, and I think this is hugely important, all healing must be understood within the now and not yet paradigm of God's kingdom. Here's what I mean by that. In theology, we have this idea called inaugurated eschatology, which just means that Jesus came. In the story, you know the story. He shows up. He inaugurates the kingdom, meaning he starts it. But the whole thing isn't here yet. The whole thing is yet to arrive, which is why we often see and experience the kingdom of God right now. When you see broken families restored or when you see foster children who are adopted into homes or when you see people who are healed of sicknesses and diseases, that's the kingdom of God right here, right now. But we also see families broken and children languishing in foster care and people who are not healed despite our best efforts and prayers. The kingdom of God, not here yet, at least not all the way. Here's an example from my own experience. A couple of years back, my wife Abby's dad, Denny, who some of you knew, was very sick with liver cancer. Odds were already bleak, but they got bleaker when we learned that he had a a tumor on something called his portal vein, which made bad news a lot worse. Odds of recovery, if I remember the story correctly, due to this new thing, were so low that he was no longer even allowed on the organ donor list. It's like, you're hopeless. We're we're not even going to waste time with the organ transplant. The new complication was presumed hopeless, and they told us so. So some of us got together prayed for healing over this specific thing, the tumor on the portal vein, and guess what? It worked. The tumor shrunk, disappeared. It was gone. The next you know, couple days went to the doctor. They were baffled. What the heck happened? This doesn't really happen. Um, it was amazing. Even the cynics among us were, were quite amazed. But though we continued to pray for complete healing of his entire cancer, he did not recover, and he died a relatively short time later. So the kingdom of God has begun. It's here. Hopeless tumors shrink and vanish to the amazement of doctors who have deemed them hopeless. But not all of the kingdom is here, not yet, so we still get sick and we still die. And really, remember this, all healing this side of the resurrection is at best temporary. So had Denny been miraculously healed of his cancer, he would still have died. So will I, so will all of you. It's been a while since I've been able to remind us all all of this. Merry Christmas. (laughs) The point, I would argue, is that the best way to read these healing stories is that they are signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God, meaning they are glimpses of what is coming in full on a day in the future on the horizon. When people are healed, we say, man, that's a glimpse of what will one day be totally true over the entire cosmos. There there is the true Merry Christmas because because of Jesus, hope is coming. And we see glimpses of that hope made reality in the here and now. In fact, in the uh, Advent season, uh, the four weeks represent different things based on your tradition or who you're reading, but they often represent, or the second week rather, often represents um, preparation or waiting, which is what we began today. And it's based on this idea that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the prophets and the people of God were waiting. When will God send his rescuing king? When will God come through for his people? When will he make good on all these promises? And then God showed up. 
But we're now on the other side of that story. We know Jesus came. We know Jesus conquered evil and death. So we have to look back and remember, oh, it's not just a story about this cool, you know, the baby showed up in the manger. It's a beautiful story, however you slice it. But it's not just that. It was after years and years of waiting and longing and yearning. But we know something about that now because now we are waiting for the future whole kingdom of God to come and arrive. So it's a very appropriate thing to remember in the season of Advent. Now, to my estimation... This idea of the now and not yet concept of healing most complicates our understanding of and approach to healing, more so, I would argue, than even skepticism or cynicism or doubt or those kinds of things, because we would very much prefer a formula. And because of this, you have entire theological systems that conveniently categorize and compartmentalize their understanding of healing. Sometimes people aren't healed. Everyone agrees on that. That much we know for sure. But why? Some people argue it's because the Holy Spirit doesn't really do stuff anymore. All that stuff stopped in the story or with the stories in the New Testament, and that's that. Other people argue that if you don't get healed, it's because God didn't want to heal you. Everything that happens happens exactly as God designed it. It wasn't God's will, they argue. So there you go. Very tidy, very convenient. And not to step on toes, but I'm convinced this is exactly why these systems often appeal to certain kinds of people. Living in the complicated tension is a very hard thing to do. So what about those of us who believe the Holy Spirit is very much alive and well, very much active and dynamic and moving in the world today? but who also believe that not everything that happens does so according to the desire and design of God. Lots of stuff, we would argue, happens contrary to what God wants and plans because God has given us a say. He's given spiritual entity, entities to say, angels and demons, and because of that, the world we can see and the world we can't see both exist in a cosmic, chaotic tangle of good and evil. God, I would argue, always wants healing, but because God has given us freedom, God doesn't always get exactly what he wants, so sometimes people aren't healed. God will have ultimate and final say, but not yet. So sometimes we pray, everyone does everything right, and the person in need of healing is not healed. That's the complicated reality we must face without allowing it to overwhelm or discourage us. And that is a complicated tension in which to operate. We approach all healing, believing in the inbreaking kingdom, believing in God's heart for healing, but understanding that healing doesn't always happen without letting that dissuade us from praying in the first place. That can be very difficult. But we have to live in that tension without being undone by it, understanding always that though we hope and pray and fight for healing now, we know and live in the hope of the coming resurrection, whether healing comes right now or not. Okay, so that was point one. Secondly, for you note takers, healing is central to salvation. In fact, the word for heal and for save in the English translation of your Bible is actually the same Greek word, sozo. In Mark, we read this famous story about a woman who's healed by Jesus after years of a terrible condition. And Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has healed or sozo you. Go in peace and be free from your sickness. But in the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a crook, he comes to faith in Jesus, he pays everyone back, and then some beautiful story, we read Jesus say this of Zacchaeus' repentance. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save, or sozo, the lost. In the story, Zacchaeus isn't healed of anything in the story, per se, but he is 
sozoed. Why are both things folded into the same idea? Well, for the very same reason that Jesus will restore and renew your body, not just your soul, at the resurrection or the renewal of all things. So we need a wide paradigm for both healing and for salvation. And on that note, my next thought about healing is that it is for the whole person. When it comes to Jesus, being saved isn't just about the body and being healed or pardon me, being saved isn't just about the soul, and being healed isn't just about the body. A few years ago, I joined a couple of pastors on a, a hospital call. We were going to pray for a gentleman who was about to have serious surgery that could cost him his ability to speak. So his wife wanted some folks to come and pray for healing, he and his wife both. We got in there, we chatted for a bit, and then we said, hey, let us listen to the Spirit for a minute or two if you're okay with it, and then we'll pray. We know what we're praying for, but can we listen? He's like, yeah, sure. So, and almost immediately, the three of us each felt very strongly that God had a lot of stuff he wanted to say to this fellow, but none of it had anything to do with the condition or the impending surgery. So we're speaking over him prophetically. It has all kinds of stuff to do with the past and, and different stuff in his story and everything. And it really seemed like it was connecting every single bit of it. He was like, oh, yep, that's, yep, that's true. He and his wife are in tears. We're praying into all that stuff. This goes on for like an hour, as I recall. And then we said, okay, now let's pray for healing, since that's what we showed up to do in the first place. And we did, and he was healed. This is why, by the way, when you go to someone on our prayer team on a Sunday evening and you ask for prayer, even over something super specific where it's not ambiguous at all what you want and how you want to ask for it, they will always say, in theory, great, let me just listen for a moment first. This is why when confronted with a paralyzed man in obvious need, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, before he says, get up and walk. It's all part of what it means to be saved or healed or being made whole and restored. We tend to think of salvation as a momentary thing that happens or has happened at a given point in time. But in the Bible, your salvation is something that has happened something that is happening progressively over time, it's a process, and something that will happen on a coming day in the future. You were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. It's now and it's not yet, which is why Abby's dad, Denny, was saved. And by that, I mean as a younger man, he met and he committed his life to following Jesus. He was being saved as he learned and grew in faith and discipleship to Jesus. And he was being saved in the fact that sometimes people prayed for him and things like tumors on portal veins would shrink and disappear. But he will still be saved on a coming day when Jesus makes everything new in the resurrection, including Denny's once sick body. Jesus comes to heal. Jesus comes to save. And since healing is for the whole person, you can understand it as taking place across four overlapping dimensions. So first, there's spiritual healing. That's the first and most basic type of healing. Um, that's what a lot of people mean when they say, God saved. This is the healing of your relationship with God himself. In the Bible story, something called sin has brought ruin to God's good world and to our relationship with God, but it can be healed. This also means that we can be healed from things like addictive patterns or habits or actions that stand to create distance between us and God. It could be something from your past done by you or done to you that creates a barrier between you and God, but that God can heal in order to restore intimacy and right relationship. 
And many of you know well enough that being forgiven and restored to right relationship with God can be about so much more than an adjustment of status, like, oh, I was in sin, but now I'm forgiven. I was this status, now I'm this status. Being forgiven can set one free from thought patterns and destructive behaviors. Being forgiven can heal relationships. It can restore joy and vibrancy to life. That's spiritual healing. Then there's also physical healing. That's what comes to most of our minds when we say healing, and we'll talk about how to go about that in a minute. Third, there is emotional healing or healing of the psyche. Some writers call it inner healing. Some call it the healing of memories. This is when you are healed of a formative wound that you suffered during childhood or adolescence or even adulthood, a mother or father wound or a traumatic incident or some kind of thing that continues to have power over you in the here and now. Here comes my uh, routine plug for therapy. A qualified therapist or counselor who follows Jesus is someone who can help you uncover that wound and learn about why it's there and what it is, someone who helps you get beneath the surface and figure that stuff out. We keep a list of recommended therapists that we can give you. Uh, If you or someone you know is looking for someone, email us and we'll send it to you. Yep, it's up there. Um, But thing is, As much as we believe in good therapy, and we do, many of your leaders are in therapy and have been for years now, a therapist can't and won't do everything. Should go without saying, seems obvious, but there it is. Honestly, I've heard lots of people frustrated with the process saying things like, I go, I talk, and not everything is fixed. To which I say, well, no, but that's not what they do. Therapists can be a crucial component in the healing process, but you have a participatory role to play, and so does the Spirit of God, we would argue, as disciples of Jesus, which is where the healing of emotions can come in. Um, Man, my wife, Abby, can tell you some pretty amazing stories about this. She's trained in something called inner healing prayer, which can yield stories every bit as amazing as a sick person being made well. The next and final type of healing is called deliverance or healing from demonic oppression. Now, this is something that we've already unpacked in detail, especially in our Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil series, if you want to go back and listen to the podcast. But the basic idea is that, at the very least, all sickness and suffering is in some sense, either directly or indirectly, demonic. So in the Gospels, the authors and Jesus himself will describe physical ailments as oppression from the devil. Or they'll describe physical healing as deliverance from the devil or from evil spirits. To Jesus, they are two aspects of the same idea. To be healed is to be set free from the power of the devil. But, please listen, there are times when the root cause or the direct cause of an emotional or spiritual or physical ailment is the direct involvement of an evil spirit. It's pretty rare in my experience and in the experience of more experienced people I know, but it absolutely happens. Most of the time, your headache is not the devil or not a demon. I doubt the devil himself has got enough free time for your specific headache. Maybe he does. I don't know. He really cares about that with you. But in those rare cases of direct influence from evil spirits, the Spirit of Jesus can and does set people free, sozo, or heal them. But they are, as with other cases, or, or, and in all of it, they are healed. So there's spiritual healing, physical healing, emotional healing, and deliverance. Now remember, since healing is about the whole person, and since all of this exists within the tension of now and not yet, the kingdom of God, and none of it is wholly formulaic, this means that they can all overlap and blur into one another from time to time. So sometimes we pray for physical healing over someone to no avail, and later learn that there was a need for spiritual healing at the root of the issue in question. Or sometimes emotional healing is blocked 
by a refusal to forgive. In my experience, that happens uh, a lot of the time, quite frankly. Or uh, emotional healing can be blocked by something like um, unconfessed sin, or at least delayed by unconfessed sin, or some blend or overlap of those kinds of things. A professor and friend of mine, uh, Dr. Gary Brashears, told me once about a pastor friend of his who was struggling with a crippling porn addiction. And then he, and he rightly knew, I was self-aware enough to know that it had to do with a certain trauma from his past, addictive patterns that had been created over lots of habits over time. So Gary went to pray for his healing, um, for emotional healing, inner healing prayer. And during that prayer, they uncovered some seriously demonic stuff that no one had any idea was the source of the thing, or at least one aspect of the source of the thing. A few years ago, uh, I was going through a really, really rough patch, lots of despair, felt distance from God, maybe worse than I've ever been, and Abby um, was frankly kind of scared, and she urged me to meet with same guy, Gary. She's like, let's just go sit with him. He does this a lot. We'll ask for prayer. We both thought it might be something demonic. It feels like uh, oppression. It feels like something out of the ordinary. So Abby and I sat down with Gary. We got to pray and listen. But instead of doing deliverance stuff, which we came to do, we ended up doing some intense inner healing stuff that I had no idea was going to happen, and it was clearly the thing. See, the thing is, as much as we say that we understand the Bible's worldview of the person as a whole being, you know, mind, body, soul, all is fundamental to you, to who you are, it's really hard for us to believe that in the functional sense, which explains why many of us tend to think by default that what's going on in our bodies rarely has anything to do with what's going on in our souls. But in the Bible, the two things are so woven together that the authors move seamlessly back and forth between the interconnectedness of the two, taking the idea for granted. Look at one example from James. He writes, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You're like, wait a minute, is this about forgiving sins or is it about being physically healed? And for James, they're both two aspects of the same idea. James just assumes that things like sin and the state of your heart and soul are tethered to your body and to sickness and to healing. Now, don't get me wrong. Please listen to this part. I am not saying that you will get sick if you sin. I am not saying that you won't get better until you confess your sins or something like that. I am saying that to Jesus and to the authors of the scripture, what's going on in your heart is connected to what's going on in your mind is connected to what's going on in your soul, is connected to what's going on in your body, which is all very complicated, but there it is. For the last couple of months, um, I've been doing research and prep for the next practice that we have coming in the new year called A Rule of Life. It's all about organizing rhythms for spiritual uh, disciplines and spiritual development. And something that I noticed early on and kind of surprised me is that just about every source I could find on the topic, both ancient and modern, included a category for exercise and physical fitness right next to prayer and fasting and silence and solitude. So I joined a gym for the same reason that I scheduled a monthly fast. Why does Jesus care about the healthiness of your body? The same reason he cares about the healthiness of your soul, because it's you. It's all you. Now, final point on all this, in many of the healing stories that permeate the Gospels, we notice a correlation between faith and healing. 
Think of some of the excerpts we read earlier in which Jesus plainly says, says your faith has, you, has made you well. Or adversely, think of the story of uh, Jesus returning to Nazareth, his hometown, where we read that he could not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. In 26 of the 29 healing stories throughout the Gospels, faith is specifically mentioned. Things like, because of your faith, or I've not found such great faith, or and on and on the list goes. Jordan Singh writes this, God's main goal is to encourage us to trust his love. So it makes perfect sense that he would arrange things so that power flows most easily through those who most fully trust his compassionate generosity in providing it. So I'd put it this way. Miracle-working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. And faith, please hear me when I say this, is not trying to psych yourself up to believe something. It's not like there's a little thermometer hovering over your head and you have to make the red hit the top and then pray as soon as it hits the top and then boom, you'll get miracles. But if it's just a little bit short, you won't get them. Quite frankly, if you read the stories, it seems like Jesus just takes faith wherever he can get it. In the stories, the person being healed often has no faith to speak of. Dead people certainly don't have any faith and that doesn't stop Jesus from healing them. Faith, I would argue is not about trying to somehow convince yourself of something before it happens. Faith is about learning to trust that God wants to do good stuff and then demonstrating your willingness to believe such a thing. Miracle-working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. Faith, I think, for us here at Van City, for our little family, faith for us will mean making space to learn how to pray for healing for all kinds of healing. Again, there's no specific formula, but wise and experienced people tend to suggest a a, a few best practices. So before we end, a few suggestions for those of you willing to learn what it means to pray for healing. First, I'll offer a short but in-depth approach, and then I'll give you like the 30-second guide to a in-the-moment way to pray for healing. So let's start with the in-depth thing. First, you do what you can to create an atmosphere of faith. This is assuming that this is something that you've planned and you're going into with some kind of foresight. You can't always control the environment in which you pray. That's fine. But as much as it depends on you, you want to work to create an environment where faith can thrive. And this means, quite frankly, that you might ask people without faith to excuse themselves. Not in a rude or condescending way ever, of course, but I've been a part of several prayer sessions in which someone asked that those who knew their faith was weak or wavering would step out for a moment. And if that sounds weird to you, Jesus did the exact same thing. He'd step into a house full of people who were mourning and miserable and crying and weeping. Faith was, had run out, in other words, and he would say, everyone go outside except you two. Stay right here. We're going to heal this girl. And having, uh, momentarily, having momentarily weak faith is totally normal. It's nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever. I have seen some of the most respectable pastors and leaders and men and women of God I know excuse themselves from a room because they had the self-awareness to admit, in a moment at least, my faith is not very strong for healing at this time, so I'm going to step out. Um, just uh, I sent this teaching to the elders to look over and Tab was telling me a story about one evening he was here in the gathering. Katie, who leads the prayer team, came and said, like, hey, um, do you think I could bother you to come pray for someone? And he was like, yeah, sure. He'd go stand up to, you know, do his due diligence. And then she was like, how's your heart? Because she had the insight to uh, know and ask, like, well, before you do, are you up for it? Is your heart in the right place? Because those two things are interconnected. And often the way that you feel 
It doesn't mean that you have to be on top of the world and full of faith to pray for anything at any given time. But if you feel absolutely depleted in your heart and soul and faith, you can um, detract from an atmosphere of faith. This is often the case for the family and close friends of someone who's in need of healing because they're so close to the situation. I know I have been and so distraught by it that it's totally understandable that their faith is worn out and tired. So someone else who's less connected to the pain of it all can step in and say, listen, I care, but I'm not undone by this, and I believe that God wants to heal the heck out of someone, so I'm going to pray. Or creating an atmosphere of faith might not mean having anyone leave, but having someone else join you. I do this every time I possibly can, to be quite frank. I'm about to pray for healing, but I pause first to grab a person or two that I know to have strong faith and ask them to join me. Not even because my faith is weak, per se, but because the more faith, the better. On our prayer team, we always prefer to pray healing with more than one person if we have anything to say about it at all. Please, by the way, join our prayer team for the love of God (laughs) so that we can do that. No prayer superpowers required whatsoever, just a humble willingness to ask God for things, listen to Him, and occasionally take a few risks. So as best as you can, create an atmosphere of faith. Next, you invite God's Spirit to work. God's Spirit, by the way, is the one who will do the healing, not you. Um, You have a very good in with the one who does the healing, but you don't actually do any of it yourself. So to begin by acknowledging exactly that is probably a good idea. And then you ask if there's anything that God wants you to know. Doesn't mean you'll always get some mysterious revelation. Could be just as simple as the ailment itself. We know they're sick in this way. That's all we need to know. But let me ask real quick. Nothing specific, so you go for it. Um, We are more but not less than our bodies, right? So it never hurts to ask. Listen for a moment, and then either way, you proceed. And the next step is, of course, to do the praying. Pray specifically, not generically. Maybe you've heard people uh, speak directly to the body or to the ailment. I do. I find it helpful to be specific that way. Remember, you are an apprentice of Jesus who has not only asked but commanded you to ask for things in the name and authority of Jesus himself, So I'll often pray something like, in the name of Jesus, meaning in keeping with the teachings and truth of Jesus, the king of the universe, we command arthritis or cancer or you fill in the blank to leave this body right now. Again, not a formula, but a basic suggestion. The key, I think, is to pray in faith. Remember, not trying to convince yourself psychologically that it'll happen, but remembering that this is something God wants to do, so I get to ask for it. That, I think, is key, the prayer in faith. Man, honestly, if if I can be uh, a bit frank with you guys, I so loathe prayers deflated by faithlessness in the prayer itself. You guys know the kind. You've likely prayed them. I know I have prayed them in the past for sure. It's when you say things like, God, if it's your will to heal, then please do. But if not, but if not, you don't have to and we'll be fine. You know, that kind of thing. You're like, wow, inspiring. So I feel so full of faith right now. As I was writing this, I was like, this sounds like Abby asking for a babysitter. See, when uh, (laughs) when you have kids, you willingly sacrifice the ease of doing things on account of someone has to keep these kids from dying all the time. So if you want to do something, you have to ask uh, for a babysitter. It's not a fun thing to do, who knew? But the way I figure, I just ask the two or three options that we have, and if they can't do it or they don't want to do it, they're adults, so I figure they'll tell me they can't or don't want to do it, and that's fine. I won't be mad about it. 
But Abby hates asking for, so she's not here to defend herself. She hates it. And when she does ask, if she can bring herself to do it, she basically says, hey, listen, I know I'm ruining your life, but if it's possible, would you watch our kids for two hours this week? But if not, no worries whatsoever. Feel free to block my number forever and run me over with your car, you know. Because she assumes no one wants to do it, but they, they might do it begrudgingly, which is a whole other thing. But the point is, there's a point to all that, a ton of us pray like that, which is bizarre. Assuming God doesn't want to do it, but he might do it begrudgingly. Are you kidding? Have you read anything about Jesus? He wants to do you good. He wants to do it. It makes him happy to do you good. You get to pray assuming that that's true, taking that for granted. Now, do not qualify your request, please, with, but if not, dot, dot, dot. Instead, boldly acknowledge you want to do us good, so do it. Be who you are. Be who you told us you are. Jesus told us to pray like that. Pray specifically and with faith. And then see what happens and maybe pray some more. If it's something that you can quantify physically, I usually ask beforehand, you know, something like, do you have pain now? If they come say, oh, I have a migraine. Does it hurt right now? If that's a great way we can tell if it's working or not. Can you stand on the leg now? Is there some way that we can test to see if this is going to change right now? Sometimes there's no way to test it, and that's fine. But then if there is, you pray and you ask again, like, is the pain gone? Or is it less? You know, sometimes I'll ask, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, and you see if it goes down at all. And if the answer is no, nothing's changed, it still can't move, it still has a headache, whatever, which it often is, you might say, okay, well, let's pray, let's pray a little bit more. Um, and here's what I mean by that. I've done this quite a bit, and I have seen, believe it or not, instantaneous and miraculous healing that happens after the first request. Yeah, ask, what's the thing? Okay, let's pray. You ask, and then it's gone. And to the amazement of the person, even more so than me. And, you know, I've, I think of myself as someone who on a good day is full of faith, and I have been like, what, really? You know, that kind of thing. But more often, more often than the instantaneous thing, I have seen healing come in stages, so you pray once, and then something happens, but not a lot of stuff. People will be like, oh, wow, that's weird. It moves a little bit more than it did just a second ago. And yeah, it could be a fluke, or it could be, you know, heightened emotions or whatever. So that's a great, another great reason to keep praying. Not all of it happens all at once, so you pray some more. Or you might pray again and again and again, and nothing happens. Then... But then the next day, you get a text or a phone call and say, I woke up and I could move my arm. It really has happened. It's the strangest thing. Something changes, but not in the moment. I was in, a, I, I believe it was Texas once, and we were praying with this gentleman who was confined to a wheelchair. I didn't initiate the thing. I'm not that brave, but I was with someone who was brave. So I was behind them being like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we... <laughs> And I was like, man, we're about to see something crazy. Um, so we prayed for hours and hours. It really was a long time. And, uh, and there was the tiniest incremental changes. to the Like at first, it was like, oh my gosh, his toes, you know, like his toes move, that's incredible. And by the end of this session, marathon, just pray and pray, and lots of people really bold. I don't know what else we could have said. The guy was able to stand up, and he managed to, in a kind of belabored and painful way, take a few steps, which was incredible. It, people, you know, were totally undone by it. It was amazing. But he didn't walk, which was strange to me. It was, it was like I was kind of frustrated. And that's, now that sounds like a petty thing to say. But I was confused. It was like, why is something, something happening 
but so little and over so much time? Why didn't it end that I knew of with complete healing? Why do a little bit, but not the whole thing? And the answer is, I don't know. But the point is, this is often a process. It often happens like that. So do not stop if there are not immediate results. You might keep at it a while, pray just a few times, and then you don't have to be like, oh, we're going to stay here all night, you know, especially if it's like someone you don't know that well or something like that. But you just say, hey, listen, you know, I've often seen healing come in stages, or, you know, you're like, I've heard that healing comes in stages. Um, why don't we pray for this again another day? I've told people on the prayer team when there wasn't any instantaneous breakthrough, we pray a little bit, maybe there's a little bit, but not something like, hey, why don't we keep at this? Next Sunday, come back here again, we'll pray again, or, you know, we can meet this week or whatever it might be, but you keep at it. Now, that's the long version of how you go about it. Create an atmosphere of faith, invite God's spirit, ask God to speak, and then pray and keep praying. But the short version is more like you're talking to a friend who's sick and you ask if you can pray and they're like, yeah, sure. You put your hand on them and say, in the name of Jesus, all sickness, leave this body right now. And then how do you feel? Any different? I do this for my kids all the time. They do it for me. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. They love it when it works, and they're like, are you serious, Dada? Like, yeah, believe it or not. I have a friend who does this for anyone who pa he passes outside with a visible ailment of any kind. He's like, hey, my name's Chad. You, this might sound weird, but can I ask about that arm? You know, now a few of us feel ready for that, and that's fine. But my guess is that if I were to ask the room, do you at least want to see more people healed by God in your life? Most of you would say, abso-freaking-lutely, I would like to see God heal people in my life. Now, I wish I could offer you a consistent, tried-and-true formula, promise you results, or even present a version of this that's straightforward and comfortable, but unfortunately, I can do none of those things. What we have from Jesus is complicated, though it is beautiful and dynamic. It's messy and complex, but even so, even with all that, it is the healing power of God himself entrusted to each and every disciple of Jesus via the Spirit alive in us. Even with a good bit of theological, theological complexity, that's a pretty great deal. But much like the other things that the Spirit does, we won't see any of it if we don't give it a shot. I think of that haunting line in James, you do not have because you do not ask. And I think all the time, oh, crap, what if that's true? You don't have to get up tomorrow prepared to become like a street ministry faith healer. In fact, probably don't do that. Um, I mean, ask God first, but not just because I said, probably don't do it. But you can begin to step out in faith, especially with the people that are in your immediate vicinity, your community, and your life. You make great guinea pigs for one another, the people that are close to you that you know that there's a safe place to say, can I just pray and ask God to heal you right now and see what happens? They won't be mad at you if nothing happens, and you won't be mad at them if nothing happens. But to end, ask yourself this, what if God really wants to heal people still today, now? And more to the point, what if he wants to use you to do it? That, I think, is a question worth asking. With that, uh, let me just pray and invite God's Spirit to come, and then I'm going to invite us to respond to this in two specific ways. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.